The first reader will read from Exodus 34, the story of Moses coming down from the Mount Sinai. The second reader will read from Matthew 17, the story of Peter, James, and John witnessing the transfiguration of Jesus. I will read a commentary from 2 Corinthians. Moses came down from Mount Sinai. As he came down from the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant in his hand, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, the skin of his face was shining, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near, and he gave them in commandment all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. Suddenly, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. <clears throat> when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, the Israelites would see the face of Moses, that the skin of his face was shining, and Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him. Since then, we have such a hope we act with boldness, not like Moses who put a veil over his face to keep the people of Israel from gazing at the end of the glory that was being set aside. But their minds were hardened. Indeed, to this very day, when they hear the reading of the Old Covenant, that same veil is still there, since only in Christ is it set aside. Indeed, to this very day, when Moses is is read, a veil lies over their minds, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. While Peter was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, This is my Son, the Beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. And all of us, with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. 
But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up, and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. Therefore, since it is by God's mercy that we are engaged in this ministry, we do not lose heart. We have renounced the shameful things that one hides. We refuse to practice cunning or to falsify God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to the conscience of everyone in the sight of God. This, this is, is the, the word, word of God, God for, for the world. world. Thanks be to God. Well, today is the last Sunday of Epiphany, the church season of the special revelations of who Jesus is. And as in these last weeks, we have re-engaged the six values of providence. Did you not somewhere along the way have an epiphany or an aha, or a, a somewhat a sighting of God's glory? There were opportunities for fresh understandings of our Lord in going to the other, not like Jonah, but in photographic training to look for simplicity, in valuing our identity and mission as we grow in God's green ecology, and in coming to understand inclusiveness as more than simply tolerance. In worship, as transformation, not simply an alternative to the world. And in changing our view as to whom we will invite to our parties, to our, to our church, and even into our lives. So was there some experience, some scripture, some word, some sermon, maybe even, some music or art or quiet? Or maybe something someone else did. I heard of Josh Bledsoe's epiphany at Joseph House. Glinda had made special Valentine cookies that she had placed in plastic bags. And Artie had created these little tags which said, Beloved. And it turns out that Josh became the reluctant one to distribute these special gifts to the table guests there. And as he gave the package to one lady, she said, Thank you. This makes me feel human. Josh said he was so overcome that he sat near her and engaged in conversation and said, You made me feel human too. A glimpse of God's grace for each of them, but even for us as we hear again that epiphany story. So here we are at this last Sunday in this epiphany season at this weird, spectacular Mount of Transfiguration, probably Mount Hermon. A year or so ago, a young man from Israel stayed in our home several weeks, and he told us of his family vacation, taking picnics up to Mount Hermon, Locally, it might have been Glassy Mountain or Jump Off Rock or, or Mount Mitchell. Uh, and it could be if, if we went to Catalucia Wolf Law, we might have gotten up there on a ski lift instead of a, a hardy climb. 
But when we got to the mountaintop, how was it up there? Maybe we sensed how small we are. Maybe we just sort of soaked up God's artistry. Or could be, barring flight paths, there could have been a deep silence. But maybe even voices of other hikers. But maybe we just lingered there. A cloud could even have come and lodged over us. Well, already we have moved into that glorious transfiguration experience of Peter and John and Moses. So, beyond location, how do we relate to such a strange, unnerving recollection preserved by Matthew, Luke, and um, Mark? What about this transfiguration glory on the mountain? Well, my professor, Dr. Fred Craddock, sets this transfiguration event sort of beyond all our experience. He writes, There are in the scriptures accounts of experiences of Jesus and other persons serving the purposes of God for which analogies in our common experiences are not easily found. And so, one reads and studies these accounts And the experience is one of awe and wonder and worship. But the question, he says, what in our lives is a suitable parallel? Perhaps hunting for similarity in our lives may not seem appropriate. Take the baptism of Jesus, for instance. It has inspired and informed millions of baptisms, But not one of them, and probably not even the sum total of all of them, parallels Jesus' experience of the heavens splitting and the dove coming down and the voice of God affirming Jesus as both sovereign son and suffering servant. Jesus' baptism was a true epiphany, a revelation of the divine son. Now, he says, the transfiguration. To what shall we compare it, since it too is an epiphany? Well, Lila, in Mary Lynn Robinson's novel by that name, after reading the crazy book of Ezekiel, says, it could be that the wildest, strangest things in the Bible were the places where it touched the earth. Maybe the strange, wild things in the Bible sometimes touch the earth in the lives of humans. And so could we kind of linger there and ponder and ponder the glory of God in our Lord, the glory brightness of Jesus and the connection to the Old Testament, maybe even the speech from God, like, sort of like touching the mystery of God like worship. Well, our corporate worship today is stirred by singing and praying and praising, hearing this hard old text, hopefully some preaching that helps us to use our minds as well as our feelings. The worship of God, both individual and as a church, is an end in itself sort of swallowing us up in the magnificent grace of our Lord. 
But worship also is the memory and the impetus that propels and drives our living in the context of God's love. And so our worship today emanates from this amazing scripture encounter like on a glorious mountainside. Well, the transfiguration epiphany comes in Matthew as the disciples try to figure out who Jesus is. To answer his question, whom do you say I am? Jesus had just predicted his death in detail. And then six days later, these three disciples in this gloriously brilliant mountaintop theophany or revelation of God are sort of sandwiched between the prediction, the prediction of the cross, and in their not yet known future reality of the cross. The dazzling appearance of Jesus in glory, the appearance of the ancient prophets and the cloud. And from the cloud comes the voice of God saying again the affirmation of Jesus' baptism, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. The ultimate epiphany of who Jesus is. I believe it is only twice in the Gospels that God speaks, and it is at these two times, the baptism and the transfiguration, that sort of bracket the season of epiphany. But here, to the three disciples, God additionally says, listen to him. He is how God, I am, is. So listen to him. Listen. You've listened to Moses and Elijah all your lives, but listen to this son with whom I am well pleased. Peter, you've been jabbering about building, but listen to Jesus. Listen to him as he talked about suffering and death, as well as the cost and joy of discipleship. Don't just hear, but truly listen. Use your sense of hearing to the max. Use all your senses to the max so that you don't forget. So that you can do as he says. So that you can begin to reflect the way he thinks. Listen to him. Well, this whole mountain thing kind of takes our breath away. But it was when God spoke that the disciples fell down in fear, greatly terrified, one text says. We might join them there too. But then our Lord touched them. And his touch with his words addressing their terror. Get up and do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. They echo the words of the prophets of old, the Psalms, the angel to Mary and to the shepherds, Jesus to the disciples when he was preparing to die, and the numerous other times as well as after the resurrection when Jesus gave the the great commission. Get up and do not be afraid. And maybe the getting up was also helpful in dispelling the fear. So perhaps when we glimpse the glory of our Lord or in a time of epiphany, listen to him. Get up 
and do not be afraid. But worship and awe and listening to our Lord and getting up are not really all about dazzle and feel-good stuff. Listen, again, as Jesus says, Remember this when I have been raised. And Peter's writing does say that reflect that he remembered. Second Peter one sixteen to nineteen. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we had been eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when that voice was conveyed to him by the majestic glory saying, This is my son, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice come from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic message more fully confirmed. You will do well to be attentive to this as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. They listened and they remembered as they grieved before the resurrection and it was a light in the darkness as they dealt with what the resurrection was and as they went about proclaiming the gospel could be the glory of transfiguration is about the times when we are least likely to glimpse any beauty in the midst of all the griefs and violence, selfishness, heartaches that mar our hearts and even our relationships. But also that transfiguration can occur in joy We go down with Jesus from the mountain, though, to our weaknesses and our inadequacies and the illness and mess of the world. So what is there about this mountain glory with Jesus that can help us as a church and individuals navigate a community searching for unity and mission in the midst of fear and divisiveness and uncertainty in this community and in our larger community, our, even our country, maybe even our world. Well, in another of Mary Lynn Robinson's novels, Gilead, old preacher John Ames says in a sermon, It seemed to me sometimes as though the Lord breathes on this poor gray ember of creation and it turns to radiance for a moment or a year or a spat of a life. Wherever you turn your eyes, the world can shine like transfiguration. For us, maybe maybe it's at the beach or the mountain or music, scripture, in the stillness and quiet or, or at the Joseph house or in the action or word of another. Such memory as well as worship steals us as well as softens us and enables us 
through the coming personal reflections of our Lenten journeys, as well as the guff and struggles of our lives. When Moses came down from the mountain after being with God, his face glowed with the fluorescent effect, Herb said. Moses had to cover his face. But in Christ, radiance is all out in the open, maybe even in us. Glenda told the story of a client who was very ill and was sort of crouched in a window um, and had been, and Glenda had been away for a few days and came back and saw this woman, and as she looked at her, she looked different. There was something changed about her. And as Glenda engaged in conversation, the woman said, Glenda, it's the God thing. Transfiguration, not duplicated, but in glimpses of God in worship, in listening and being attentive, in getting up and dealing with fear as we walk with Christ alongside us. And in that, we are being transformed to reflect our Lord's glory into the places we are. Jesus did not promise that we would be transfigured like this or even witness such as what we have read in Matthew. However, the Apostle Paul reminds us that as we glimpse the glory of God as in a mirror, we are being transformed by that glory from one degree of glory to another. And then that is reflected out of us into the places we are. Writer Elizabeth Painter observes, the promise of transfiguration is that the glory of God transforms our worlds and us from the inside out. To God be the glory. Amen.